Welcome to today's episode of the Bake Out Sports Report and the Live from Lake Balfour Podcast Network. Very exciting episode on tap for today. We'll be talking with Greg and Danny Silver. It has been a week since our last episode where we broke down Bake all-time starting five. We've gotten a lot of feedback off of that, so we'll address that at the top. And then after that, we will be in-depth on a variety of Bake topics with Olympics. We'll be talking about classic breaks, team meet locations, and so much more. So without further ado, let's bring in Greg and Danny Silver. We are now joined on the line by Greg and Danny Silver. So guys, before we get into what we have planned for today's episode, which is Olympics, I want to start off with addressing some of the feedback from our last episode. If you haven't listened yet, last episode we broke down our all-time Baco starting five, and anytime you put together a historic list, anytime where you take players and put them in the context of history, there's going to be feedback. We got a lot of positive feedback. We got some debates being sparked, so I feel like we should take some time here at the beginning to address all of that and Danny let's start with you what was your take on the feedback we received from last episode well Maddie I can tell you from first-hand experience I've been getting mostly positive feedback from all over um, the alumni community all sorts of ages about just one how awesome the podcast was um, and two just uh, you know in this kind of time where we're all stuck at home how it brought a smile to some people's faces so whether you agree with the top five, you don't agree, whether you feel like you got slighted, I think the purpose of the pod, um, I think we hit it. So nice job with that. Some specifics on the top five, and Greg, feel free to jump in. So some guys that we mentioned that got edited out of the pod because of some technical difficulty that we've since sent the bonus coverage to is a guy by the name of Jeremy Boom Boom Feldman who was in that Sam Oler uh, age group, was probably the second scorer on all those Sam teams. I thought he deserved a mention. Probably not top five. It definitely deserved a mention. And uh, another guy on that same team, Ryan Petro Drazen, who has been texting Greg and I off the hook about how he was slided. And he's another guy deserved to be in the pod. Great career, champion, did all sorts of great stuff, um, got edited out. But, uh, you know, not top five, but definitely worth some airtime in the pod. Um, so I want to clear those two things up right away. Greg, you got anything? <clears throat> I just think it's important to know that we're talking top five. I mean, this is rare air. So there's a lot of guys that are honorable mention material, uh, including the guys you just mentioned, Boom Boom and Petro and a couple others. But we're, we're talking the top five players so to not be included in that is not a knock on anybody um so so the josh lemurs of the world and the the rob masses of the world or even the danny silvers of the world who had a phenomenal career yeah we're talking i want to i want to go on on the lemur thing because i know his waiter bunk 1999 they won 16s uh for the first time in 14 years which is probably one of the bigger baker wins of all time and lemur while well, Sam won the MVP, I think Lemur was the best player in that waiter bunk, best player on that team. Um, you know, one thing that, you know, the 99s are all very loyal to Lemur. The one thing I think I got to say is, like Greg was saying, this is a Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, you know, top five. This isn't like naming the All-Stars. Lemur had a good career. He was great as a waiter. But the other guys that we mentioned, especially the first four that we mentioned, were guys that got it done for four or five years and won titles a year up 
where Lemur was more of a great waiter year standout, which, you know, we've had a lot of those guys. Yeah, he won big basketball the year before his waiter year, but so has a ton of people. Um, but I know there's been a lot of talk about Lemur. Um, another one that I definitely feel like we shortchanged was David Baruch. I think if anybody's got a uh, bone to pick about not being in the top five, it could be Baruch. He won, I believe, 12s, 14s, and 16s twice, was MVP of 16s, put up absurd numbers in camp, out of camp. Um, Baruch was almost like, like, he was almost just too good looking and like too smooth to be like a regular camp player. He was kind of. The, the thing with Baruch, I feel like his resume is up there with Ower and Glatzer. He just wasn't a quote unquote basketball player. He was like a ridiculous athlete who was a winner, hustle player. Um, one of the rare, one of the rare MVP of leagues while in Bump Twenty Two. Uh, no, I think was he. I thought he was MVP of leagues and all around. Right. Well, what, what, whatever. Baruch also played in high school. I just think Baruch has a legit case to be in the top five, and we totally, I think, brushed over him because of time. Now, I will say this to you, Danny. As someone who has grown up here at Baco in the 2010s era, and you see someone like Glatzer evolve through the system, you see all the help he's gotten along the way, whether it's, like, guys a year up, like FEMA, where they were able to win 16s, or all the guys, like, when you look at Rab and Chuck and Ben Potters, who are our age, and you look at the help that Glasser's gotten along the way, do you think that the supporting cast was better for Owers based on the way that you're talking about all these guys like Petro and Feldman who were clearly there to help Owers? Um, to answer you, I think the talent's deeper now. Um, I think the second, third guy, for lack of a better term, now is like a role a lot of people fill. Um, yeah. Maybe not the 2018 team where it was, basically, it was pretty like five or six guys, but I feel like this year's team and next year's team, the age groups are deeper, where in the Petro Feldman era, like, you needed production from those but, So let's guys. do the thing where you take people between errors. Let's say you take someone like Feldman and you place him on Glatzer's team. Is that a better guy, or is he worse, or is he blending in with the rest of the team? Like, how are you That's looking at these guys? Question. I think Glatzer, I think Feldman performs... Very, in a very similar way next to Glatzer as he does next to Sam. I think he emerges probably as that second guy um, in, on this year's team. The whole FEMA thing is totally different. I think FEMA, you know, similar to Lemur, had like an incredible winter summer, unbelievable talent, but he didn't string it together for, for the whole time. Um, but I feel like Feldman would have been the number two guy on this year's team, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, because I'm just saying when you compare between eras, you know, we keep going down the honorables mentioned list, and it seems to me like you keep bringing up guys from that team, so it implies to me that that well, was no, more of well, like... One thing you got to understand is Baruch. Baruch is not in the category that you're talking about. Baruch was after... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he was in like the period that was, was like... He was a winner of 2008. Right. Yeah, Baruch, Baruch was not anybody's role player. Baruch was the man. Yes. Um, no, I'm not saying uh, him. I'm talking about the other guys, yeah. Yeah, but... um. I would say you bring up a good point, but the roles Devere and Feldman played and Petro were absolutely crucial because there was nobody coming behind them on the bench. The way that I love Aiden Rabb, but if he didn't perform well, Eli Greenberger was there. If Chuck didn't perform well, Ben was there. Leo Hoffman was right. there. There was just the, the teams, I think, are deeper now. So the urgency for those other players to play 
well wasn't there the way it was. Like, if Boom Boom didn't go for 15 and 10, nobody was doing it. Yeah. Am, am I answering your question? No, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because I'm thinking between eras. And why do you think that is that the depth? Do you think that's just like the natural evolution of camp or the development what do you of. Think, Greg? I think it's just, it, is, it is just a personnel thing. I think a lot of it was just being ready to play. There's much better coaching. Um, and who, you know, the competition, you know, a lot of it is who you're going up against. So, uh, and just the free, you know, positionless basketball. And I think these bunks now get along, not to say the other bunks stayed up, but these bunks get along so well and they know each other so well that they just have so much fun playing together. They know that if they mess up, their buddy's going to pick up slack. You know, I think Boom Boom's style of play was so close to the hoop. He made a hundred layups every single game. And that's what his role was. He did it every single time. So there was nobody that was third or fourth that had to pick up the slack because it was never needed. All right. And Petro and, and Devere, if they didn't hit shots, nobody else was going to hit shots. Where now, like Craig was saying, positionless basketball, the style of play, like if, if Eli Greenberg is not hitting, JFD probably is. You know, if Leo Hoffman's not playing well, Chuck Bookbar's probably on. It's just, I just feel like there's more high school players now. The system has lends itself to just kind of, uh, you know, everybody contributing. Um, where I think back then it was more possession by possession, more play calls, more specialization um, by position. But uh, and one more guy I got to give a shout out to David Felton. Who I mentioned a little bit in the other pod. He's another guy who probably sniffs that top eight, top ten um, that we kind of brushed over. He had a great career, one of the all-time great Scotty Pippen role-player role types. But um, the, the, that's the feedback that we've gotten, that those were some of the guys that didn't get mentioned, and I felt that they, you know, deserve a follow-up. All right, so fair enough. So for all of you aggregators out there, consider yourself mentioned on the podcast. So yeah, now, I hope, that, I hope that gives me more more stuff to argue guys, argue about, guys, and get off. Yeah, Boy, feel... I can't wait to be involved in seven more tests. <laughs> yeah. So now moving on to what our actual topic of this podcast was supposed to be. So we're going to talk a little bit about Olympics here. So for those of you guys who weren't following along during the summer. We did an incredible podcast at camp that you can find back in the archives of this Live from Lake Balfour podcast feed where we broke down the Apache Relay for like a solid 40 minutes. But now we're not going to be talking about the Apache Relay, but we're going to focus on more what happens at the beginning of Olympics with the break. So I know there's obviously been a true evolution of the Olympic break over the last 30, 40 years, your lifetime at camp, for sure. Because when you look at the breaks now, they're really fun and they can get really creative, but they're not truly terrifying in the age of, you know, the internet and the way that my generation is being raised. If you did some of the things that we saw back in, like, the 90s and you just hear stories about I mean, kids would just be terrified. So why don't you go over some of your, like, classic 90s books? Well, I, I think it's important to, to, to say that, you know, the, the perspective of a camper or a counselor or an alumni or a parent, it's all about the perspective. You could be in bunk five or six and think that a break is, like, five or six days long, but then a kid in bunk 18 or 19 or 20 might realize that it's not that long. You know, so yeah. a lot of it's just perception, and what you think might be scary at some point might not be scary at another point. Um, but so I, when I was a kid, it was the same thing. We heard about all these terrifying breaks, you know, the wolf break and the bear break and camp. Yeah, apparently the wolf break. break. There are, 
there were wolves scratching on the bunk. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's one that clearly sticks out. And uh, I, I'm a grown-up. I'm, I'm a grown man. I've been a grown-up for a very long time. And this break still scares me. And I'm still worried about it. Is the, is the 1988 break? Um, yeah, and you were like a third, and you were like a thirty-year camper. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You were like punk eleven, thirty-year camper. You were almost at the age where you're cocky that you know the break's coming, and it still scared you straight. I mean, I was a second-year camper living in bunk four, and I'm still just as scared about it today as I was then. Um, yeah, I mean, without going into crazy detail, I mean, Danny could probably set, shed some light on some of the factors that happened during the break. It was just. I mean, it was it was all hands on deck. The whole camp was into it. Yeah, just to give you the quick uh, Cliffs notes. I mean, I'm sure there are some older, you know, guys older than me that'll listen to this pod that will probably be able to fact check me on a bunch of this. But the, like Greg said, it's all about perception. I was a kid in about four. To me, it probably seemed like it lasted three days. But now, when I think back on the actual events, it probably lasted like a day. Um, so what I remember is some waiters were going to go across the lake to go look for Lord Valfour's treasure, which right there is probably like a dead giveaway. Uh, <laughs> and I remember them packing their bag of like overnight supplies and food out in front of the dining room after breakfast. And then at some point during the day, um, uh, Snorky, who is a uh, father of a current camper, and uh, Evan Aversa, who was all around athlete that year, showed up on the Arts and Crafts Shack slope looking like they had been roughed up. Um, this is right before lunch. And then, uh, obviously, the rumors start flying about what happened to them and where they got taken. They probably just got taken, you know, somewhere across the street or something like that. But we thought that they were, you know, I was seven years old. These guys were waiting my table that morning. Um, and then around General Swim, another waiter came rolling in on a canoe that looked like he had gotten roughed up. Um, the rumors continue to fly. And then by the time it was evening activity after dinner, all the rest of the waiters were canoeing over to rescue their friends. Greg, you want to go into the whole buzzy part of it or no? I think I remember someone like laying down in a rowboat across the lake with a bandage on or something. I, I think that was Yodowitz. It was that Yod- and, I, and, and, and he came rolling in during General Swim, which... You know, back then, I remember General Swin, every single kid being there, six, six period. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is it probably wasn't. And I remember it being the whole camp watched this canoe, like, roll in. I'm seven years old. I'm freaked out. Um, I, I think then, also when there were some missing counselors, and then, like, after yeah. the break, we found out that, you know, they were just hanging out at the garage, you know? Or not yeah. missing counselors, missing waiters. And back then, um, the garage was for waiters and waitresses. And we, when we found out that they were hanging out there all day, I was like, so, I remember being so jealous. Like, oh my God, like they got to, they probably had like so many buttered bagels and like they probably got to eat Pringles the whole day. Like, that's so sick. And then, uh, and then at evening, you know, now that I put it together, it's probably all one day. Then evening activity, um, you know, there were all these rumors about certain waiters that were lost and no one could find. and. Um, right after dinner, all the waiters went in their canoes to the other side of the lake, and the whole camp was on the slope watching it. And was there a flaming arrow shot or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think we were all in the all in the social.
Rachel Hall for a talent show, and we got word that whatever waiter was missing, they found. So everybody stormed out of the social hall, which I'm sure wasn't a safe situation. And we all ran down to the Arts and Craft Shack slope where the waiters were all there painted up. But for me, as a bunk four kid, the crazy thing about this is the waiter that was missing, you know, I believe he was on Blackfeet. Oh, oh, this is great. This is great. I believe he was on Blackfeet and he was painted up in like a skeleton, black skeleton. Um, and as the powers that be thought it would be a good idea to have that guy be our OD that night, bunk four <laughs> as a waiter OD. And I was basically crying all night. And during Olympics, I was still scared of the break. I even came back, I'm not even kidding, Maddie, the next summer. It was my, I was now a third year camper. And the first couple of days I was in camp, I was still scared of the mountain. Like the mountain. No, I was still afraid of the mountain that I thought they were lost it, even though I knew it was fake, and I knew they all came back, so, that was really So I think that that Lord Balfour uh, break that occurred on the lake is a good segue to discuss another Lord Balfour break that occurred on the lake some 25 years later, which was my first summer at camp, actually. Um, so my first summer at camp, they obviously had the break that was a ski show break, where they there was some kind of they have a ski show break right yeah and they had they someone had thought it was a good idea to bring the Minerva fire trucks down to the lake to like try to rescue someone. Um, no, I think I think what it was was they were going to use the water from the lake. Did they have to empty the lake or they had to? No, well, that was a different break when the uh, when the lake was running out of water. That, that was a different break. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting your lake missing water. Yeah, I forgot what. Matty probably remembers it better than us because he was a first-year camper. He was probably yeah. Um, I knew exactly what was going on, but what I remember about that break is the fire trucks coming down and they got stuck there, which is like an all-time classic thing that must have been incredibly stressful in the moment. But now it's like hilarious. The well, fact we that had to call, we had to call Ronnie and Brutus to get like a tow <laughs> truck, and they like had to they had to pull the, the fire truck out waterfront and meanwhile these, believe, the poor Minerva I what happened was just to give you a little bit of background on that Maddie I think I, I could be totally off on this I think the local fire department was you we like called them in to make the break more you know elaborate and more yeah. crazy so we thought if we wheeled the fire trucks down it would have a little bit more wow factor and I think the local fire department used it as a training for some of their new people. Oh, right. So it was all, it was supposed to be this, like, you know, beneficial for both groups. I believe it poured that day. It probably always pours the day it breaks. And I believe the fire truck got stuck. For those alumni, like, where the boating benches are. Yeah. Like, you're looking down at the lake on the right. Am I right, Maddie? Yeah, they did. And they were spraying from their fire hoses. I think they were drilling their fire hoses. See if the fire hoses were working I just remember just walking away being like, I deal with a lot of camp, but this couldn't be farther from my jurisdiction. Yeah. <laughs> well, the poor Minerva Fire Department were trying to be like good Samaritans to the community, and meanwhile, they're getting stuck, and like all those people have to work later for some stupid break that had no semblance of reality. But anyways, aside from those breaks, what other like Olympic moments really stick out to you well, i want i want to there's one more break i want to bring up i don't want to rehash it because i think it might be a little too sensitive yeah but I, I this one i think deserves to be mentioned is 
it was 1990. I was 12 years old. So I had been in camp for a bunch of years already and, like, had already not been scared from breaks for years. But this, I mean, this one's got Mel Wartman's fingerprints all over it. He, we were, that was like, and I, that was the year when, like, the United States was at war with Iraq. And we were at camp, and it was pre-internet. So nobody knew, like, anything that was going on in the real world. I think that summer there was a rumor that Magic Johnson was traded for... Akeem tries to pull that one off in 2020 about half the camp would probably call their parents to send them home i don't know if more people would be upset while it was going on and their counselors were leaving or afterwards when they realized that they had actually faked something that was so serious you know there's 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 one moving on from the break if we can Maddie. yeah of course there's one thing there's one thing i've always wanted to talk about and sort of float out there and this is a perfect opportunity to do it is the the merits and demerits, the, the pros and the cons of the locations of the team meets. And I don't know if I want to, I, I mean, I, I can assume I know where Danny's favorite team meet spot is, but I'd love to hear from you, Maddie and Danny, which team meet spot is the best, which one has, provides you with the most advantages, which one is the, the one that makes you struggle. Because I always, you know, I always make sure each team gets each spot. Well, far um, and away, the... In my opinion, the most antiquated spot is the amphitheater. I think that oh, the amphitheater is, the is just like chance, like I don't know why. I don't even know why the amphitheater. Like I feel like the amphitheater should be put like aside from the view. I feel like it should be put in the category of like the old dome. Just like I mean, it's just really not necessary to have all those I totally, stones. I totally disagree. I disagree. Interesting. How come? Yeah, I just I think you got the Army Navy Day thing up there, so you have there's. There's a little of comfort and experience. I think you're far away from everybody else. Well, you have the, the view. You have out. the view. I mean, if you bring bug spray or some sleeves, you, you, I think you're good. But I'm saying in terms of motivating a bunch of kids for, like, I'm not saying to get rid of the amphitheater, but in terms of the amphitheater's usage of Olympic sing practices, it is totally unnecessary to have... It checks, it checks all the wrong boxes. I mean, every single one. It's in the sun with okay, little shade. I'm, I'm going to say the nature lodge is probably the best, and I'll... Oh, it's 100% it the in a way best. that counteracts why the amphitheater is terrible. So I feel like you need a tight-knit geographic spot yes. where you have control of the kids. In the council ring at the or sorry, in the nature lodge, small little ring, everybody's tight and they're look and they're looking at each other. The amphitheater, it's like the seats are uncomfortable. 
everybody's in rows. They can drift all sorts of ways. The bugs are terrible. The distractions are bad. You're not only I mean, you have a great view, but you also have a view of like a million things to distract you. Um, yeah, like I think this year, like we were in the middle of a like team meet or whatever at the amphitheater, and then like someone's mom just like randomly showed up. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be the one without you're trying to teach an alma mater, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I think the council ring is brutal because of no matter which way you're sitting, the sun is always... No, three, quarter, three quarters and, of the council ring team meets, though, end up being next to the tree, oh, under yeah, the trees. Yeah, next to the four trees in, in the shade. And then I feel like the terrace has, like, a, some good energy and, like, Whenever you're not on the terrace and you're watching the meat that is on the terrace, you always feel like those guys are loud and have it together. That is, that's the, the most terrace. accurate statement ever because yeah, the terrace is directly, the, you can 100% hear the terrace from both the counseling and nature lodge. You, I, you're I, always I, jealous of whoever is at the terrace, even yeah, if you, when you're like at the terrace, like you don't want to be there. Lodge and, and the waiters give you a break to go down to get a drink from like the dining room. And you watch whatever team meets going on at the terrace. Like you're a little intimidated, you know. I think I think the terrace provides like there's the hot dog pavilion. There's a couple of areas of shade, and then if it's an after, if it's a you know an after lunch or like afternoon whatever team meet, there's a good chance that the juice call leftovers are still out. So you've got like you have the juice call cabinet, you have the water fountain, you have shade, and. It's also a good spot to have to be assigned as a counselor because you got the gazebo. You can, you know, kids can work in there with some other counselor with other waiters. The counselor ring is good because you can practice where you're going to sit. On yeah, the floor. because that matters. I, I mean, I think it matters. It doesn't matter. Hang on, can we just take a quick interjection here of the? Uh, you just mentioned something, Greg, that I think we need to harp on a little bit more. You mentioned juice call. Can we just do a quick hot take um, session about Juice Call? What, what do we need it for? Because there's so many better things that we can have than really mediocre sugar cookies and juice that tastes like diluted water. So well, hold on, Maddie, Maddie, hold on, hold on. Maddie, when you were a kid, you were a Juice Call freak. So you, were, you had a juice mustache all the time. Listen, you were at- I'm saying that... If we're just being logical here, there have to be, like, could you not have, like, ice cream or, like, there have to be a million things. Milk call is the best. But juice call, like, what are we needing it for? The juice is I really crappy. I'll tell you all Maddie, Maddie, when you're on daytime OD this year as a first-year counselor, when that juice call bell rings, you will be the happiest person in the world because you'll know that, you know, it's that 15-minute that Cut off of free Listen, I'm not I'm not advocating for the getting rid of a snack 15 minutes before the end of free play. I'm advocating that there has to be something better than diluted water to be serving at Juice Call. Yeah, character. I mean, what would we be talking about now if the juice wasn't diluted? We'd be talking about milk calls. Well, milk calls the best. There's no one who could say, other than like a true like Stephen A. level contrarian. There's no one who could actually argue that Milk Call is not awesome. One of the greatest things about Milk Call is you can go to Milk Call every night for the whole summer and you won't see anybody cut the line. It's like there's this... There's this yeah, 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 yeah. There's I don't know. I think you may be a little naive on that front. What about the indoor team meets? We don't really have those anymore. I feel no, like when it's, it's raining. Uh, indoor team meets? 
I mean, Archer Crown Shack. We had one at the Waiter Shack this year. Yeah, the Waiter Shack, which some people might not know what that is. Yeah, I'm I'm not ready to go deep on indoor team meets because the indoor locations have changed so much over the years that like whatever's relevant to me it probably isn't that relevant to Maddie and definitely isn't that relevant to whoever's listening. So, so what's um, the evolution on like the teaching of songs? The word song sheet only exists during Olympics at camp. I mean, when else do you say the word song sheet? I think yeah. it only, it's one of those words that only exists at camp, kind of like gravel or uh, exempt or, like, when do you um, ever use the word exempt when you, unless you're at camp? I think the whole strategy of teaching songs hasn't changed all that much over time. I can tell you what exists now that existed when I was a kid. Yeah. One, song sheets. Two, always a couple of like younger kids that need extra help that are either pulled off by certain waiters or older kids that learn the songs privately um that existed the whole thing with the older senior division campers going through the bunks after eating activity that's my favorite i love i love that all all that stuff has lasted the test of time and honestly to bring this back to like a bigger level that was like mel's whole thing with olympics was to create these types of situations where this type of leadership would organically happen and 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 be passed down, um, and the the preparing for the sing and the sing itself is like as timeless and as classic now as it was when I first got to camp, you know, in 1987, and I'm sure well before that. So, um, and everyone takes it so seriously, which I love so much, and. The, the upper senior kids that are like a year before waiter, they try and take on responsibility while the waiters are still in the dining room, you know, when they're headed to a team meet or they're helping with, if there's a kid that's, that is a, not a native English speaker, um, a couple kids from Spain, Venezuela over the years, uh, that will have, you know, someone on the team that speaks that language and will help the kid. And it, it all, it's not directed from me or Allison or Danny. It's so organic and it comes from like exactly the right place that should come from in, in camp. And especially our camp where we're built so much on these, these positive, long lasting traditions and none is more sacred than Olympics. None. Yeah. And Maddie, a couple of years before you got to camp, uh, for those, you know, old school bacon people, you, you know, Mel used to, you know, run the sing and the headdress and the whole and the whole thing. Um, and he used to enter the council ring a different way every year. And you know, some years I remember he well before time he came in on a horse and you know he came in on he came in on a birdie bus. He, he came, came in on a birdie in, bus. He came in with like fake. Uh, he came in on um, he came in on Jerry's know, Jerry's motorcycle one year. Yeah, he, the year he came in on Jerry's motorcycle, we all pretended to be um, secret service. Yeah, like secret service, like. But one year, Maddie, I believe it was 2011. If it wasn't 2011, I might be off a year. Oh, this is, this is good. And what Greg was saying about, like, the Olympics and how it's so organic and how it's, like, the most classic and timeless thing in camp. Mel, um, you know, during the time when the judges are and the scorekeepers are getting the scores together and the kids are waiting in the council ring, which now is Bruno announces the tennis matches and all this stuff now. Mel used to tell a story, and it was a campfire story usually, but that year, Mel, and I've been in camp my whole life, and I've never heard a speech like this in camp or anywhere. Mel basically
basically started telling the story of the first Indian Olympics in camp. And it turned into this amazing speech about... Is that on record not anywhere? Just, not, no. And that's the beautiful thing about it. If you weren't in the council ring that day, like if you were a judge, you didn't hear it. If you were a scorekeeper, you didn't hear it. If you were on a day off, or you were one of those counselors that found something else to do, or if you were a kid in the infirmary, um, and you didn't hear it, you missed it. Mel started telling the story of the first Olympics, but it became a bigger picture of like what camp was about. But you know when Mel tells those stories, and sometimes it's hard to stay focused because you know he's telling a story in a lot of ways just to calm you down. This one was the best Mel speech of all time. He basically painted a picture with words of camp and what it meant to him and what it meant to his family and what it means to all of us. <clears throat> And when it was done, you know how Bruno gets. Like, Bruno gets very... Well, hold on, hold on. Before you get to the Bruno part, the way Mel sort of, to, at, towards the end or at the end, he said, you know, I could look to my left and see the purple mountains, in, you know, above Lake Balfour, but I don't have to turn to the left because those mountains are etched in my brain like they're etched in all... I'm going to cry. I got the chills, I'm going to cry. And, and he, he, he had a great line about how... Camp was a work of art, and we were all the artists, and it, 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 it was amazing. And it wasn't just cliches, it was actually, like, amazing speech. Mel will always tell you he never planned a speech in his life. Um, and this one, I, I think, was from the heart, but it was amazing. And once he was done, Bruno, the way Bruno does, stood up from his chair, walked right up to the, right up to the lectern, right up to the podium, and was basically saying, you know, Mel, I've been coming to this camp for 35 years, like... You know, he, Bruno couldn't hold it, hold it in. He just basically proclaimed his love for Mel and camp. And it, it, it was one of those moments in camp that is up there with any up there with the main squeeze in 2012. Like one of those like magic, you had to be there. You know, kind of top Rushmore level moments. But um, and that's what Olympics is. I mean, that stuff only happens in Olympics. Sure, it's about the buzzer beaters and it's about the great alma maters and it's about. You know the waiters running out. It's about you know the four teams and 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 the you know and and then the Braves basketball tournament and Chiefs water polo. But but it's about all the organic, amazing things about camp that come out during Olympics. I couldn't agree more. All right, thank you guys so much for doing this. Hopefully, we'll be back soon. All right, thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the Lot from Late Balfour Podcast Network. We will be back very soon. We have a lot of content coming up in the next couple weeks. We're going to have a big show-centered podcast coming up soon. A lot of great content, so make sure to stay tuned for all of that. As always, I am Maddie Wasserman saying so long, and we will see you next time.